Hi, this is Erica T. Worth, author of White Horse, and you are listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Hello and welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, where we collect brief interviews by creators of new or upcoming projects. We'll open up the guests reading an excerpt from their project and then follow up the interview proper. Transmissions will post on the last day of each month. I'm Nicholas Dyack, pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. And I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on horror, fantasy, and spy genres. Nicholas and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarlane. Our first transmission is with Bernie Gonzalez. Bernie is a comic book artist and writer known for his series Midnight Mystery, a noirish Kolchak meets the stylization of Batman the Animated Series. Along with Pete Charbonneau, Bernie also co-hosts the Fan to Fan podcast, which celebrates all things pop culture. Welcome, Bernie! Country booze tastes funny. That's why I stay within the city limits if I can help it. But when an out-of-town client with deep pockets comes a-calling, I make an exception. Said client wants me to venture south, way south, and find someone that's buried six feet under in the Cajun sticks. Buried for a good long time. Not that that makes a difference for most. Dead is dead, right? However, in my line of work, dead and buried is just a state of being. The lady wants me to head to the man's eternal resting place, strike up a conversation, try to rustle up any particulars about his passing. How she got wind of my services, I don't know. Some dicks shadow, cheating husbands, others play nanny to house guests. Me? I can talk to the dead, among other things. Somewhere along the way, my client found out that the supernatural was in my purview. Nonetheless, she was nice enough to send over a map with all the details down to the tree next to the tombstone. I appreciate the legwork, but it's her hefty cashier's check that got me out of my comfy office chair and behind the wheel. I head down the interstate and begin my road trip. I'm not one for lazy Sunday drives and sightseeing, so I pour some lead in my size 10s and burn rubber. When I finally reach Bayou Country, a flat lands me bumper to Jesus in a ditch. 
I'm not much for standing pretty with my thumb twisting in the night air either, so I decide to hot-foot it down the road to the nearest diner. Lady Luck being on my side, Mildred tells me the cemetery is within spitting distance. I tip her extra for the directions and stiffer for the day-old coffee. We are joined today by comic book creator and podcaster, Bernie Gonzalez. Uh, folks that are longtime listeners to HP Lovecast probably know Bernie because we name drop the Fan to Fan podcast all the time. Um, but Bernie is, uh, the, the wheel has turned, uh, the tables have turned, uh, and Bernie is on our show to talk about his the horror occult cold check all you know very uh supernatural, supernatural mm-hmm. comic midnight mysteries so first bernie welcome to the show it's good to see you thank you too thank you michelle thank you nick uh you guys have been very gracious to join pete uh co-host extraordinaire uh on the fan to fan podcast where we talk about just about every cheesy 80s movie in existence, along with uh, we've delved into some HP Lovecraft 101 in advanced studies, 102 as well. Um, so you guys have been very gracious to join us in some conversations. So like you said, Nick, the tables have turned. And now I am at your whim to talk about whatever you'd like. And looks like we're talking about Midnight Mystery. <laughs> We are, uh, you know, over here on the podcast, we don't just talk about Lovecraft stuff. You know, we we dive into a little bit of all aspects of horror. And Michelle has a particular soft spot for cold check. And we generally mm-hmm. like occult things. And we all kind of grew up, you know, watching some of these, uh, you know, Twilight Zone, uh, uh, Night Gallery, you know, s- serialized type stuff. And you have a, uh, a comic book that follows in that vein, which is Midnight Mystery. So first... Bernie, why don't you tell us, what is Midnight Mystery about? Sure. It's a suspense horror comic book series, like you mentioned, that follows the strange adventures of Ezekiel, or better known as Zeke King. And name-checking everything that you mentioned, it's a mix of Supernatural, you've got X-Files, certainly film noir movies in the vein of Maltese Falcon, uh, a lot of uh, my love letter to Kolchak the Night Stalker, uh, underrated, but very influential series that influenced things like X-Files and Millennium and shows that I grew up in the 90s watching and that have influenced my work, including Midnight Mystery. And I do it all in the style of Batman the Animated Series or for folks that are familiar with uh, maybe the deep end of the pool of comics, you know, beyond just like Batman and Superman. Uh, Darwin Cook, who created a series called The New Frontier that was very influential in the formatting, in the style for me. So a lot of supernatural crime type stories where you follow this detective that's kind of in this in the vein of like a sam spade with the trench coat with the collar popped up in the fedora in back alleys but in those back alleys he doesn't just run into hoods and gangsters maybe he runs into ghouls and zombies (laughs) um well we'd love to hear what the catalyst is for midnight mystery since obviously you're a fan of all these things so what 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 was that that spark i don't if you talk to a lot of artists um and i'm very much a functional artist where i don't always have a lot of sketchbooks going and i know that's probably you know uh the opposite of what they might tell you in an art school or you know you should always be drawing you know you know if you're a basketball player you're waking up to practice free throws right if you're an artist you get a sketchbook if you're a writer you've got a journal and you're writing but 
I don't have a sketchbook per se, but when I start thinking about a project, I will fill up sketchbooks with functional artwork, you know, trying to draw maybe uh, period accurate cars or buildings or clothing. And I think at the time I was watching, this would have probably been in the early aughts, TCM, Svengoolie, MeTV, Maltese Falcon type shows that were really interesting to me, crime stories, uh, Richard Parker, uh, pulp novels. That was all something that was just interesting to me. So my headspace was already there, but I knew if I was going to tell that kind of story, I would have to do it with a little bit of a twist. And the twist for me was to add something supernatural. So that was kind of like the impetus for Midnight Mystery to allow me to play around with the typical trench coat wearing detective tropes, but then get a little bit of left of center by being able to allow myself to have fun with ghost and suspense and things that maybe, again, like things like Kolchak have done uh, way better certainly than I have, but that allow me to have a little bit more fun than just cigar chomping, where I can maybe delve a little bit more into the stories behind why the supernatural exists. Uh, so that started kind of in the early aughts, and I was able to gather myself together, you know, artistically and write a few scripts for myself. And then that's where Midnight Mystery was born. Well, speaking of the, the genesis, just because, you know, you're drawing a lot of what you grew up with as inspiration in it. Um, what's some of the things that you really wanted to accomplish with Midnight Mystery? Is it like a love letter to all the different like media that we've kind of talked about before that you consumed? Is it to introduce new folks to that? Or is it you just kind of got some cool stories that you really want to get out? A D, all the above, uh, everything you mentioned. And also I wanted to, I mentioned tropes before as much as I wanted to lean into them, because I think we've all grown up with these things, whether we know them or not actively, you, you just kind of know how a detective story should play out. And if you've watched Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, uh, One Step Beyond, any of these shows, they kind of have a certain style, that O. Henry feel, where you know at the 28-minute mark, you'll get that twist ending, and that'll be the reveal. I wanted to kind of live in that space, but I wanted to do it with a character that was a little bit more three-dimensional, and that's what Zeke allowed me to do, to tell the story of a character that kind of lives in this netherworld. And Nick, you'd mentioned this before. It's I'm trying not to necessarily timestamp the era where the story takes place, but there are certainly elements that, again, inspired by Batman, the animated series, have that sort of netherworld, dark city feel where it could be the mid-40s or the 50s, and we're not sure. But hopefully if I've done my job as a storyteller, the reader doesn't care because the story, the characterization is really what's grounding uh, the comic book series. So it allowed me to tell fun stories, but maybe with a little bit more depth, I hope. And that's what Ezekiel King allowed me to mind, the, the type of character that would live in a reality where he has seen uh, he has seen things that are not easy to explain, but yet coming at it from the kind of like that scully skeptic perspective, I need to have some logic or some science behind these things because I don't doubt that they exist. I believe they exist. But if a vampire could exist, could a zombie exist? And if a zombie exists, could a ghoul exist? And, it, it, you know, he lives in this world where it's not about believing. It's about understanding. I I just want to inject the, the Dark City reference. One of my 
all-time favorite movies that you know one of the lines in dark city is you know the city is made of memories from you know people of different errors and whatnot and you know uh, reading a uh, midnight mystery yeah it does feel like a post-war 40s 50s maybe early 60s a little bit of you know both gothic but also retro with a little bit of googie that it all kind of meshes together but it it works because you know i'm a reader through it i'm i'm bought into the uh to the setting for it uh mm-hmm. folks listening uh tune in later on a fan to fan episode where we all talk about a movie called parasite where one of our contentions was this is a post-apocalyptic film like we just don't buy into it it's like it's just a background that doesn't make sense no you're setting in midnight mystery since it covers basically three decades of imagery that's meshed well so together that it feels timeless in that way it can be uh you know almost anyone can kind of anchor onto something from it and it doesn't feel out of place i'll take it as a compliment because i think again as a storyteller (laughs) <laughs> I, I will, because if if he if it's too distracting, then I haven't done my job in making you care about the character. And I think that's really important to me. One of the the maybe side notes to the to the birth of Midnight Mystery, I had just gotten out out of a very long relationship when I really started making Midnight Mystery. And somewhere at the core of Midnight Mystery is me trying to answer the question where I was in a relationship where I thought you could kind of start figuring out what the next decade was going to be. And I kind of knew what that was going to look like. And when it didn't happen, it started to get me to question like, well, if I thought this was right, then now that I know that it's not going to happen and it's wrong, then it, it just made me question the reality I was in. And that's that's where I try to work with, uh, with Zeke, uh, someone who, you know, he served in the war and you get little inklings of that throughout the story. And you get that he's worked with different cases. So he's someone who's uh, a little jaded. He has some scar tissue on him, but yet he's still reacting to everything with a little bit of the, I would think, the the anxiety of the fear of, okay, my reality has just kind of been thrown aside. Well, what do I do now? Like, what happens? Because if what I thought was going to happen isn't going to happen anymore, then how do I plan? And I think that's the the part of him that maybe echoes a little bit of my type A OCD. Like, all right, well, I'm going to go hunt down to Supernatural, but I better make sure my car is full of gas because I want to make sure that I'm ready. I, you know, want to have my my stakes uh, fully, you know, sharpened because I don't want to be caught without enough stakes to stake the vampires because I'm well past the do vampire exist. Now I just have to make sure that I can take care of business if I have to. <laughs> Um, given uh, what was kind of at the core of uh, Midnight Mystery, I'd love to hear, um, Bernie, what is something that you're most proud of from this series? If it's a panel, um, a scene, perhaps a di- uh, you know a dialogue that takes place, um, something that you can point to and basically go, yeah, that that's me. I did it. I'm I'm. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of a specific panel or line of dialogue however i think the fan reaction and the fact that there are fans at all of midnight mystery is always surprising to me uh you know i I have three volumes out there now and i still get emails a few times a month from folks that are discovering for the first time uh who and i think the best compliment is when i get an order on my website and i ship the book out And then maybe a few days or a week later, I get an email from the person. And I know because I just emailed them the book 
So when I can see, I sent it to a Jane Smith and Jay Smith at Gmail emails me with something in the title, in the subject line for the email that says midnight mystery exclamation point. When I see that email and I've you know seen a few of these and I'm grateful for them, they respond to what I was trying to do uh, yeah. and, and trying to kind of like unearth to try to tell an enter entertaining story. And at a time when, you know, we all know, like there's a lot of streamers out there, there's books, there's video games, there's a lot of competition for our time. And if someone has taken the time to read one of my stories, I'm grateful. That's probably the, the thing I'm most proud of is that if I was able to entertain someone for 10, 15, 20 minutes, I'm happy. If I was able to get someone to email, then I mean, I, I don't know if it gets better than that because I was able to to vibe with someone who gets what I get, who watches Fenguli Saturday nights like I do, who maybe heard about Kolchak and, and checked out an episode and that got them to check out X-Files, uh, you know, like all of those little things where I'm like, yeah, like we could totally hang out, get a cup of coffee and we'd be talking about the same things. And that's, that makes me kind of proud, kind of find, find my tribe. Nice. Well, for, for readers that do get a copy of your comics and they're sitting back about to read it, you know, for full immersion, some folks, you know, like me, you know, we like to have a soundtrack in the background. So, so <laughs> for, for folks out there that are reading, what do you suggest to set the mood for songs or soundtracks or whatnot that you think pair well with Midnight Mystery? I think this is where, Nick, I would lean into the private detective tropes. So if you have some good moody jazz, uh -huh. uh, that would work well. But a little bit something left of center would be some bossa nova music. Okay. And as a fan of uh, Johnny Quest, the cartoon from the 60s, if you go online and you find Hoyt Curtin, he he was the the composer for a lot of the music. But it has like this kind of like, I don't know, very pronounced horn, lively like music that is kind of the soundtrack in my head when I write these stories. So it isn't always moody jazz. Sometimes it's upbeat. And when it, it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, what is the seatbelts in Cowboy Bebop and the, yeah. the intro where you get a little bit of that acid jazz. And, you know, if Ezekiel King is running down a back alley, like that's what's playing in my head. You can almost feel that like very lots of horns and, and just, I don't know, just moody. That, that'd be the soundtrack. You bring up uh, Johnny Quest, so of course, uh, throughout this hour, Johnny Quest, you know, leads to Venture Brothers, and Venture Brothers leads to Dr. Girlfriend, and some of your lady characters look like inspired by Jackie Kennedy, Dr. Girlfriend, um, and they're awesome, <laughs> except your, 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 a lot of your ladies are very tragic. They do tend to die, though. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of, a lot of death in, in Midnight Mystery, but, you know, I mean, with, uh, a lot of the stories are meant to evoke the, the titles and the feel of like pulp stories. And I think this is where, again, your mileage may vary based on your age. So you may not have never, you may have never read a pulp story, but believe it or not, if you've watched a Guillermo del Toro, uh, del Toro movie, mm -hmm. if, if you've seen, you know, certain type of media, certain video games that lean into pulp roots, when you see a, a title of something called like, Dead Letters or City of Ghosts or Burning Bride. And those are some midnight mystery stories. Their titles alone are meant to evoke a certain feel. You can almost see the sepia tone in the story you're about to see. That's that's what I hope it, it, it kind of leans into where you already you kind of know what you're getting into. And then it's my job as a storyteller to give you something you hopefully weren't anticipating. Um, I was just thinking about 
um, the fact, Bernie, that you you not only wrote, but you also um, illustrated, um, and then you did have a letterer. And I can uh, remember back to when I would go to the, the comic book conventions, and I'd go to the panels that would talk about, you know, how you get your start in comics. And invariably, people would ask, I'm a writer, but I can't draw or I'm an artist, but I can't really tell a story. And they, they, you know, and always come up that, well, if you could write and illustrate, you had it easy because you could do both. But um, it, I think that there's probably another side that, you know, grass is not always greener on the other side. And I would imagine there, there may be challenges that you encounter the fact that you do both and, how are there challenges is it or is the grass greener on that other side it's not greener i can tell you that much <laughs> the probably the hardest part about both writing and drawing and mind you i think both are difficult on their own if you're doing it together you you don't have a team a partner someone to bounce off ideas and because of that it very much feels like i'm working on an island mm. and because comics take a long time to create and I'm trying to compare this only to other media that we enjoy, that we've seen the behind the scenes creation of. You see the behind the scenes making of a film. And there are so many hands and so many perspectives involved that in some ways it has to come from one vision. So a director, a writer, someone who put that kernel together that inspired everyone else to bring it to life. But you also have these checks and balances along the way where you could have another writer come in or a cinematographer and say, I see what we, what we should do, but maybe here's a way to a different way to, to do that scene. Um, so in some ways the director is constantly getting notes, you know, uh, maybe some that they don't want to receive, but they're, they're constantly receiving a feedback that has to, I imagine feed into their vision of the thing they're going to make. It, it's not a hundred percent pure them. It's not as all tour. I think in comics, it's probably as collapsed of a creation as you can think of. I mean, I think it's probably maybe close to a musician that can both write their music and perform it and then also produce it from a technological standpoint and then release it on Bandcamp or something where it's like, oh, well, who produced it? Well, I did. Okay, well, who wrote it? Well, I did. Well, who performed it? Well, I did. Well, did you play all the instruments? Oh, no, I brought in some people. Okay, cool. Well, maybe that changes how the track sounds. Um, in comics, if you're writing it and you're drawing it, the feedback is, well, maybe in some cases, my wife for better or for worse, uh, she'll get to kind of check things along the way. And I, you know, I use her as a sounding board to see, am I doing on paper what I think I'm doing in my head? So in those cases, I'd say, Michelle, that's where the grass isn't greener because sometimes it's just fun to have a partner and somebody else that you can bounce ideas off of. Because then you're just not living on that island in your own head for so long that 10, 20, 100 pages later, someone says, oh, well, what you were trying to accomplish, I, I don't see it. And, you know, that's the the gut punch for, for a writer artist. We are like, oh, no, like that was three months of my time, four months of my time. Um, and in the end, you have to do it for yourself. But I think that's where I think uh, having a partner of any type, um, I think, helps you to just kind of have those benchmarks along the way to check. Are we on the right track? Uh, on on uh, HP Lovecast, when we do talk to different folks that make comics and stuff, we always learn something even more interesting about that industry. It's one of the 
this most interesting, you know, artistic endeavor industries out there. And since we have been to a lot of cons, like Michelle saying, that's one of the questions that always gets brought up is, you know, how do I get into comics? That's why we see sure. so many panels on how to break into comics. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm going to reference a dialogue we've had many, many moons ago, but I thought it was insightful from you. So I'm hoping you could do a little recreation of it. But that's uh, the, uh, you're not a letterer. So you bring in a letterer. And I think lettering is probably one of the most unappreciated and probably invisible aspects of of creating a comic. Sure, you know, you open up the, the front panel and it's like written by, story by, letterer. I mean, they're there, but, you know, where, where's the famous letterers at and stuff? But you, you have uh, mentioned to us before, you know, the importance of getting a getting a good letterer and and what a good letterer can bring to a comic and i'm hoping you can maybe uh dig deep into your memory and bring some of that back out yeah i mean i'm trying to uh i, I worked with wes loger on the three volumes of midnight mystery and i think the fact that he is a writer not only for comics but for video games but i think there's something there's a storytelling aspect beyond the beyond the comic book medium that helps him to be a really good letterer. And I think there's a shorthand that we've used whenever he sees, here's my script in a Word document. All right, well, now here is a Dropbox with a ton of my pages. And because I don't have I, I don't have like what I call like Bendis balloons, if you ever see, uh, you know, a lot of those early ultimate Spider-Man Bendis is very well known for being very verbose, like, you know, and there's just balloons everywhere. Right. And I don't do that. I, I try to be very stark, very thrifty in my writing. I tried to do the, a lot of the heavy lifting in the art, in the panel. So usually, and I don't have a lot of purple prose either, even for something like midnight mystery, I try to let the mood kind of soak in through the artwork and, and the era and the feel of it. And then try to be, again, a bit stark with the writing. So when I do try to write those sentences for the page, I'm also doing a lot of self-editing myself. So if in some ways to answer that question, like to me, a lot of lettering is, you know, a, a sports analogy is like the offensive lineman of comic book making. So in football, <laughs> if you never say the offensive lineman's name, you know that they had a great game because that means they weren't able to tackle the quarterback. They didn't sack the quarterback. And that means that that offensive lineman is terrific. In some ways, I think lettering, if it's too much of a distraction, then if you know it's there, then it takes away from, from the reading, from the pacing, from the rhythm of a comic. It has to really meld with the style, with the tone of the book. And that's something that Wes is, is terrific at. As a, as a follow-up, um, Bernie, how did you find Wes? Uh, we were working for the same publisher, and I think uh, I really appreciated his style, and I saw that same sentiment in a lot of his work, where he was very good at, uh, kind of like, uh, I don't know, very sparse writing. Um, and in some ways, like, he, he did a lot of, uh, he did his own book, too. That helped me understand that he could convey his own thoughts, do his own editing. So... If, you know, I have a word balloon, uh, a few word balloons in a panel, um, I try to carve out space where visually it kind of makes sense where I would put it, but then also know that if I'm going to give it to somebody else like Wes, then there's things that I know they know as part of their craft 
that would not be as intuitive for me to do. So that's where they can help out. And again, that's where it goes back to having a good partner that can come in and do that. So um, Wes has been a very good partner for the three volumes of Midnight Mystery. And again, in some ways, if you can read it and you don't really pay attention to it, then hopefully that means you're so involved in the story that you're not, you don't even care that I'm there. I, it's like, nope, this is just Zeke, Zeke's story and somebody told it. That's very cool. Um, and the lettering is, you're exactly right. It does feel that if the letter lettering does attract attention to itself, then it, then it hasn't done its job, which is, which is exactly right. So, uh, Bernie, to put you on the hot, hot seat again, um, as a comic book creator, who are some of the writers and artists that influence you? I'm probably more influenced from the artistic side than the writing side. And when I think of artistic influences, Alex Toth, huge influence on me. Uh, he created Space Ghost, Birdman, a lot of those like 60s Hanna-Barbera cartoons that we grew up with and loved in reruns. But there was uh, uh, his, a lot of his phrases, and I have these in my office at work, uh, uh, simple, uh, simplicity, but not simple. Uh, there in the and one of his other quotes, and I'll have to, I don't know if this is exactly right, basically like put everything on paper and then take away everything that distracts, which in some ways kind of goes back to the lettering. I, I try to be a little bit economical in in the art where I don't want to uh get too too obsessed with like rendering a background or a face because you realize when you give a comic book to anyone else. Um, you see how quickly they're flipping through the pages. And as they're flipping through, you realize, well, that was a week of work. That was seven <laughs> days of work. That was five days of work. But you can't fault them because that's how we process them. That's how we, we, we're we reading the word balloons. And you're not necessarily paying attention to the detailed artistic rendering of, of a building in the background. And as the artist, you know, yeah, my heart breaks a little bit. But then there's the part of me that's wearing the writer cap that says, good. They're flipping pages. They're going through. I'm hoping, hopefully they're they're interested in this. So again, a lot of my influences on that side are more about artistry. Um, Mike Mignola, that's another good example of someone who started with John Byrne as a writer in the first volume for Hellboy, but then found his own voice. And I think that's probably a good kindred spirit, you know, that's good company, better company than I should be in. But I can imagine same, same idea if we were in the same room, um, folks like that, even someone like a, a little retro in Jack Kirby, where I think he was just uh, a natural storyteller. He just happened to have comics as his medium. Uh, but I think, you know, he was also influenced by the pulps, uh, by uh, sci-fi and horror uh, thrillers of his era. And that came out in his work. But then you also saw that he also wanted to delve into mythology and creation stories. And that's also in his stories as well. So I think that's where a lot of my influences come in. As much as I love, say, like a Robert McGinnis, who's known for creating a lot of like pulp covers. There's also the part of me that like someone like Darwin Cook, who also wanted to tell a story influenced by people like Jack Kirby, but also put his own stamp on it from a storytelling standpoint, from an artistic standpoint. Well, Bernie, we are coming towards the end of our interview with you. And folks out there, uh, you know, Midnight Mystery is not the only thing Bernie does. He is prolific. He's got other stuff, both present and 
future. So, Bernie, what's uh, what sort of news can you share with us on on the horizon for you and your projects? Well, I've got three volumes of Midnight Mystery out now. I'm currently working on volumes four and five. Uh, four is done as far as the artwork is concerned. And that one is will be called uh, Midnight Mystery Presents Ghostland. And if you've read volumes one, two, or three, or if you haven't, does it matter? Four and five will kind of in their own way be a standalone. It delves into Zeke's history in World War II. And one of his first encounters with the supernatural, I can say that, uh, where it's really, you see his background in, and I think this, you know, helps to establish his character. He was in like a special forces type unit involved in spycraft and espionage, very much involved in like in the middle of World War II. So you can take in all those saving private Ryan tropes and where the Eagle has landed and kind of tinker Taylor soldier spy and mash that all up, but then throw like a few supernatural sprinkles in there. That's what Ghostland Volume 4 and then 5 will be, where they'll still tell more about Zeke, but flashing back into the past a little bit. Uh, and then outside of Midnight Mystery, I'm always kind of working on some other projects that Michelle and Nick have been a little privy to behind the scenes, and they've seen some uh, peaks, but hopefully some uh, some of those projects will see the light of day in the, uh, in the coming year. But, you know, I, I love uh, telling stories. I think that's also why uh, you two have been very gracious to come on the Fan to Fan podcast, where we talk about a little bit of everything. So if I'm not podcasting or writing, I'm drawing or watching a late night movie. That's, that's kind of usually what my days are made up of. Uh, well, since you brought up fan fan, um, want to give you a, a chance to plug a little bit like uh, what uh, listeners might be hearing soon. Uh, sure. I'm trying to think uh, Pete Charbonneau and I, who've been, wow, we've done quite a few episodes and we, Hmm. We we go deep into 80s, but for anyone that's listening, don't think we just do 80s. And as Michelle and Nick know, because they've been gracious enough to join a few times, we've talked about Lovecraft. We've talked about Saturday morning cartoons. Uh, in now into the the summer of 2023, we're dealing we're going into our 3D summer, where mm -hmm. as Nick kind of highlighted before, we'll be talking about great classic movies like Parasite 3D, the Charles Band <laughs> 1984 movie. Uh, along with coming at you and metal storm to destruction of Jared sin. You'd think we'd talk about Jaws 3d or Friday the 13th 3d or Amityville 3d. Oh no, no, no. We, we, we want to get as esoteric as possible and just talk about some really cheesy movies that, you know, are almost always fun because they're first time watches either for me or Pete or some of the guests that come on. So we're all kind of processing them at the same time. <laughs> and I think, you know, uh, getting different perspectives like yourselves always makes for a more interesting conversation. So fan to fan podcast, a lot of cheesy eighties movies and lots of 3d movies coming at you summer of 2023. And right now I think uh, your series is on TV themes and stuff. So they do some cool stuff over at fan to fan. Very, very kind of you, Nick. We'll take that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bernie, we appreciate you coming on HP Lovecast podcast to talk about your comic and for you to be in the hot seat for our podcast. It's always great to see you. We always appreciate us being invited on your show and we appreciate you coming on ours and um, we, we can wish you continued success. And we also hope you have a, a great rest of the weekend. And again, thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Nick.
Welcome back. For our second transmissions, we are talking with Joshua Pruitt, an Emmy award-winning writer who has worked on IPs such as Mystery Science Theater 3000, Hamster and Gretel, Phineas and Ferb, and The Last Kids on Earth. He is also a co-writer of middle-grade works such as Shipwreckers, The Curse of the Cursed Temples of Curses, or We Nearly Died a Lot. Nailed it! Joshua joins us today to talk about co-writing the graphic novel of Last Comics on Earth. Welcome, Josh. Hey, gang, this is Joshua Pruitt, co-author of The Last Comics on Earth. And this is just a little bit of an introduction into what this graphic novel is all about. The Last Kids on Earth are creating their own comic book. Jack, Quint, June, and Dirk are about to face a challenge unlike any they faced before. At their local comic book store, the kids are, make a startling discovery. They've read every last issue of their favorite comic, Z-Man, and no new issues are coming ever. Thanks a lot, Apocalypse. No! Our heroes have but one choice. Continue Z-Man's legacy by writing and illustrating their own comic book. Step one, knock off their beloved Z-Man and cast themselves as super rad, super goofy superhero protectors of the mysterious city of Apocalyptia. What could possibly go wrong? Just about everything. Welcome to HP Lovecast Podcast. This is uh, Nick and Michelle. We have a longtime friend, a longtime listener, uh, a person that we hang out with all the time on the Fan to Fan Podcast, but first time coming on our show. So uh, Josh Pruitt, welcome. It's wonderful to see you. Great to be here, gang. So great to see you both, as always. It's good to, to see you, too. Uh, we're here to talk about a graphic novel that you have coming out, Last Comics on Earth, which is in the Last Kids on Earth IP. Um, you've kind of uh, talked a bit about the plot and everything, but want to know, how did this uh, story come about? What was the catalyst of it? And how do you get involved in an established IP? Oh, great question. Um, this has kind of been a, a joy kind of from the beginning of all of this, I got invited to participate um, in the Last Kids on Earth animated series for Netflix some years back and uh, was working with my dear friend and writing partner, Scott Peterson, who was a showrunner. And the other showrunner was Max Brawlier, who was the writer and co-creator of the series. Mm -hmm. And we hit it off. I mean, essentially what The Last Kids is, is Evil Dead for kids. <laughs> and and it's real plus monsters. Like, like plus kaiju, right? Like set in an apocalypse. So so kind of all the joy inherent in all of that was the kind of thing that I've loved since I was a kid and, and Scott as well. So there was something about the inherent DNA in the Last Kids universe as Max and illustrator Doug Holgate built where it was, I was just at home and being on the show was the same, you know, like we got a chance to develop the characters a little bit for an animated series. And Max and I really hit it off. Um, and so I wrote four episodes of that show and I ended up co-writing the video game, um, which turns out is pretty highly rated, which is awesome. The kids love it. Um, and uh, Max and I have been friends ever since. And so this kind of came out of, you know, an opportunity Max had to spin off this very successful book series and animated series into a new place. And uh, he was kind enough to kind of tap me for it. And, and we had the chance to develop what the last comics on Earth uh, became. 
is just a side question. Is this the first uh, sequential art, you know, a part of uh, Last Kids on Earth? Is this like the first? Yeah, it, it is. There, so so uh, Doug Hogan, the illustrator, you know, he does a lot of illustrations in these books. They're heavily illustrated middle grade, um, but they aren't quote unquote graphic novels. It's mm -hmm. not inside a comic panel. It's, you know, they are illustrated books. Um, there was a, a short kind of anthology shaped project. Title is The Last Kids on Earth, Thrilling Tales from the Treehouse. The, the idea was there's different illustrators involved and it's different takes, different tones and visual takes on the Last Kids universe. And that was a graphic novel. That was all comics, but they were all short stories. Mm -hmm. So the fun of this one is it's one big story. And, you know, the twist is that it's it's our characters, everyone's favorite characters, who are actually writing and drawing their own comic book. And that, that really came out of when Max and I were brainstorming, we kind of had this epiphany that as comic book fans, there wouldn't be any more comics. They would literally get to a place where they've read every comic in their local comic shop. And it, it wasn't super obvious, even when we were brainstorming right away. It's something that occurred to us as we were playing in the universe. And it just perfectly set up what we wanted to do. Because the big picture is like to want to do something fun and funny, make each other laugh, but also inspire kids to make their own comics, which is what we, almost everybody I did, I know, did when they were kids. You know, you get inspired, you read stuff, and you make your own stuff. Mm -hmm. Who's the, the author of the comic book about, right? Like Scott Cloud or something? Scott McCloud. Scott McCloud, yeah. It, that's what this reminds me of. It's a, a yeah. comic book about making a comic book. And so here's a yes. comic book about kids trying to make their own comic book. That is so yes. cool. very meta. Totally. Well, as a follow-up question, Jeff. Yes. You know, you've written in a, a lot of mediums you and you've done a lot of collaborative pre projects such as TV, MST3K, cartoons, novels. What was the experience like uh, working on a comic? Are there differences, similarities to the other endeavors or is sequential art just a totally different white unicorn out there that is just so different? I think when it's hard, it does feel a little bit like a unicorn that you're trying to catch. Um, I think one of the benefits of this was um, Max obviously knows the voices and I've learned to, 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 to speak and write in their voices. So that was, again, that was a joy. Like I could write in that universe forever. Um, and so that made this, that piece easy. But when it comes to writing for comics, I had done a little bit of work in the license space, like on Toy Story 4 and onward, I had done some short form for Disney and Dark Horse. And so that was a little bit of a training ground for me. Um, but for this, you know, really what you're doing is you're writing for the artist. And so we're working with an amazing, funny uh, illustrator. His name's Jay Cooper. And uh, we also have kind of wraparounds from Doug Holgate, which really, you know, give context to all of the funny in insane shenanigans on the inside. But, you know, you are writing for an artist. So get so so Jay actually did some work on thrilling tales from the treehouse and so uh, max and i had a very clear sense of like his gifts you know what he was really uh good at and and you know he had a lot of visual jokes um very expressive drawings very fun and cartoony um and so on the page when you're writing for comics you're you're really just trying to walk the artist through what the needs are on that page 
So in some cases, you're being as deliberate as you can. You are trying to write visually. You're trying to think in pictures. And then there's also a structural part of it where you want to be aware of not having too many panels on the page, not having too much dialogue per panel. You know, that'll kill, you know, a visual medium. You know, it's fine for us to monologue on the TV show. It's fine to monologue, you know, in a book. But in a comic, you want to make sure that it's everything is staying punchy and visual and you're, you know, four to five panels per page instead of six and above. And um, and again, catering to the needs of 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 those artists that you're working with. Um, but it's also really fun to be thinking in that comic space and think about the page turns and what that represents in that, you know, story beat and thinking, oh, you know, how many pages should this action sequence actually take versus, oh, here's a here's a full page spread. And what what kind of impact is that going to have on a reader? So it's fun to think about the different interactivity that a comic represents, you know, versus those other media. Mm -hmm. As a as a follow up, you know, we've talked on fan to fat fan, and it's you know we've always talked about a lot of different movies. I, I you know I consider you a cinephile. Definitely um, is a cinephile plus plus. plus. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, a su super size, but um, you know. How does your experience and enjoyment of films uh, influence uh, or have bearing on writing for comics? In, oh, in good question. Experience? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And certainly my TV writing too, like again, because you want to be thinking visually. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think it's a major influence. I mean, when, when Max and I sit down to, to write these things, like, you know, we talk a lot in movie terms. So we talk in movie terms from references. We talk in terms of close-ups and wide shots. Um, and so there's certainly a lot of cinematic language that comes. But, you know, there's also a lot of tone. You know, we're thinking about things in terms of, like, you know, funny superheroes. And we're thinking about exciting action. And, you know, Last Kids kind of lives in this wonderful Amblin, you know, Evil Dead and Goonies space, you know. <laughs> Like it's a it's a wonderful place to play. So I think when when we're sitting down to write, yeah, we we definitely you know we talk a lot about John Carpenter movies, whether whether they're it's appropriate actually for the tone or not. Um, but certainly we are you know we're trying to dive into our inspiration and dive into the things that we really love to kind of build these characters. There's a um, uh, one of our our, our big bad for uh, book one is a character called muto and you know he he's a little bit galactus meets gigan and mechagodzilla you know so we've got a little bit of our comic heritage in there but we're also thinking about you know classic sci-fi and superhero stuff and you know that it's a major influence on a lot of what we're building here you know, as a kind of a related question of that, talking about, you know, how to, you know, do some writing, because you, like Michelle said, you're, you're a cinephile. We, we've talked many times about horror films, cult films, sci-fi films, gory films, but a lot of your output output is very kid friendly yeah and, you know I, let's be honest you're you're a big kid <laughs> we, we all I'm, I'm, I'm a i'm a big kid for sure <laughs> so how do you like uh you know keep you know harnessing that big kid uh part of you how do you keep uh you know able to write for you know a middle grade audience or a preteen audience um 
you know, keeping them in mind uh, as compared to, you know, the type of stuff that we consume that may not be such a, you know, <laughs> for little kids. Yeah, it's a great question. I think my mom would love to know well, how, why that is or how that <laughs> is. Um, she asks me all the time. I, you know, I think that part of it is, you know, I have kids myself, which certainly helps. Uh, uh, they're uh, 12 and 14. Um, and they're in a sweet spot where they actually care about what dad does for a living and think it's kind of cool, which is wonderful. Um, but I think I, I, you know, I often find myself going back to the well. So reading comics I loved when I was small, watching movies I loved when I was small, or were of that formative age for me. So I, I want to say that I'm I'm never too far mm-hmm. from those influences. And certainly I'm reaching out for new things. But I think the thing that I've found that I'm very focused on in my career is there is a, how do I phrase this? It's like, it's formative, but it's those like introductory things that were like a little bit scary or a little bit exciting or, you know, maybe they, you know, they gave me that thrill, but I could still watch them, that entry level stuff. And so I love this notion of like treating, you know, shipwreckers as entry level Indiana Jones, right? Before mm-hmm. you can watch Temple of Doom, you know, a, a book that Scott Peterson and I called ship uh, did called Shipwreckers. You know, it's a younger version of indie because, you know, Raiders is is a little rough, you know, and again, that's not a reflection on Raiders. Raiders is wonderful for what it is. But if you're 10 or 12 and you want something that's 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 big and exciting, there's not a lot that caters to you in that space. And so I think the fun of writing for younger audiences is to have some awareness of that and to, you know, give bits and pieces of the fun, you know, that I think the joy of the last kids universe specifically is again, because it's an evil dead for kids, we get to do zombies. We get to do monsters. You know, we'll, we stop at a certain point, but I never feel like we're shaving the edges off. You know, it's like, we're just not going in for the close up, right? Like there's still fun. There's still running. There's still scares. And so I think even when we're building last comics, it's it's like, oh, what are our favorite things about superheroes? What weirdness can we get into with powers? You know, um, and keeping it in that kid space, I think to Max and I usually means, and Jay and Doug too, uh, keeping it funny. <laughs> funny first. And I think that's really what helps. You know, if you think about, as we've talked many times, if you think about the journey from Evil Dead 1 to Army of Darkness. Oh, yeah. Right? There's we we get to live in a joyful kind of army of darkness space. And it doesn't mean I don't love the evil dead and evil dead too, but army of darkness is something that I can sit and watch with my kids right now. And so I think that's a wonderful way to kind of honor those influences, um, but also an opportunity to show kids. There's so many other worlds and and universes that you can get into. um, And, you know, and there's more when you get older. Mm -hmm. This uh, uh, a little aside here. It's when you bring because I love Army of Darkness. It's still my you know. There's the camp Evil Dead Two Army of Darkness. I always go for Army of Darkness, but it's what post Army of Darkness is the the film version of that universe has gone way back to original the early days. Yeah, yeah. That they have a new Evil Dead movie coming out, and you know it's another new one. Another new one. <laughs> Evil Dead Rise. <laughs> yeah. But the irony is, is there, there's a there's a fork in the road after post Army Darkness. The movies 
yes. you know, go back to Evil Dead, but the comic books like Dynamite puts out yep. comic books Army of Darkness, they keep the Army of Darkness tone. So it's uh yep, agreed. Bruce Campbell as a you know a <laughs> buffoon that still doesn't, you know, he's basically immortal, you know, he gets beat up in every issue, but it doesn't matter, he's still gonna chainsaw everything. So it's funny that there's that split. There's a split, there is. And, and it's interesting. Somebody mentioned online this past week because I'm so excited about Evil Dead Rise. Mm-hmm. I can't wait, and I loved the the 2013 remake. Yes, because it it so beautifully did what I think Evil Dead does best, which is this thing is a ride, and you are gonna go through it. This this is this is an endurance test, and it's also a huge amount of fun. But like this looks so intense, I'm scared to go to the theater, and I can't wait. <laughs> but yeah, there is there is this wonderful split, like essentially like evil, you know, Ash versus Evil Dead, the series, that's the Army of Darkness line, right? right? That's the Army of Darkness lineage, right? Mm. And then these other movies are actually, they, they're starting to like open up that early days, darker Evil Dead. What's really interesting is like some people forget how intense the first one is. Mm-hmm. And so their recollection is Army or bits of Evil Dead 2. But, it, you know, uh, I, I take some pride in reminding people that that first film, I mean, it's not really that funny at all. It has its charms, but that is not the point of that movie. <laughs> it's so funny because uh, I've seen all three, but the one that I always go back to is the, the first Evil Dead. I mean, that's oh, interesting. That has has the, the most resonance for me because it was so scary. Yeah. And scary. some people don't, you know, don't want chocolate in their peanut butter, right? Like some, <laughs> some, some people don't want the comedy to mix in the horror, and that, that, like, that's what's so beautiful about it. Is like, depending on your taste level, there is an Evil Dead for you. Yeah. As a side cross promotion, some sometime in the near future, a fan to fan episode will drop that I'm on with uh, Bernie Pete talking about Reanimator and oh, all wonderful. The- the the you know the fine line between a horror comedy and splat stick so mm. oh lots to unpack there i can't wait to listen to that oh cool. i can't <laughs> wait to hear it either. well um josh i feel like um what you're able to do with kids com with the kids comics is really a, a unique gift and a skill in in my mind oh thanks Jeff. um so i feel like there's is there an element, a joke, a one-liner, or anything from the project that you are most proud of? Where you're mm. like, yes, I nailed it. I did it. You can just point to that and go, that's me. Yeah, yeah that's totally <laughs> me. That's all. There, <laughs> there, uh, there are definitely a couple. And I think, again, some of the fun that Max and I had was trying to make each other laugh. Mm-hmm. And largely, we're writing this kind of late at night. And so it's a little bit like, you know, you're at a sleepover with your buddy and you're making, you're cracking each other up. And then, you know, the the chore is to make sure you've written it down. Um, but I think one of the uh, one of my favorite things we've done with the characters, actually, is, you know, they all have these different superhero personas, but what and and they very deliberately come out of different superhero traditions. So Jax has like a Green Lantern kind of vibe, a traditional superhero vibe. And Quince is uh, his Doc Baker persona is like a a little bit of Doc Savage and a little bit of Inspector Gadget. Um, and we kind of run the, oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh no, I was making the Inspector Gadget noise. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's okay. Um, yay, sound effect. Um, but what we did with Dirk uh, Savage, who is largely a 
Um, you know, he's a, a bit of a bruiser, maybe kind of used to be a bully and is a reformed. Um, and so he's kind of the muscle, sometimes strong, silent type in the in the traditional series. And what, what Max and I thought would be fun is if we turned him into a Conan type. Mm-hmm. So we actually turned him into the savage aloner. <laughs> and so he always wants to be alone. And there's a bit that Max and I wrote that always makes me laugh. So every character in our book has an, an origin story. Mm-hmm. And we do this for each one. And there's a bit on the Savage Aloners front page that says, anything you can do, he can do better. And he does it alone. <laughs> so he's he's kind of a breakout hit on the creative team. Um but yeah, I think, you know, uh, there's also a lot of visual jokes. So again, in that comic book space, right, you want to pack this thing. And, you know, Jay has really done an extraordinary job. There's loads of movie references in this thing. So there's lots of little even jokes that aren't even one-liners. Um, and, you know, because we want to make sure we're delivering a full meal and dessert with this book. Um, and certainly trying to make each other laugh is is par for the course. Um, because we're, well, we're, we're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, do you do a lot of meetings virtually? Um, or are you meeting in, in person where you have conversations around a table? How, how does that process work? Just it's, it's largely up. over, it's largely over zoom. Mm-hmm. We, we broke the, so we broke the story for this one and we re, uh, we're actually in the midst of writing book two. Right. So there's going to be four of these, which is really exciting. Oh, great. Um, and small hashtag spoiler alert, there might be a Lovecraft adjacent villain in book <laughs> two. So uh-huh. we'll, uh, we'll have to come back and talk about that in, a co- in next year. Um, but uh, yeah, so what Max and I try to do is break the story in person. <laughs> so we get the benefit of that time together and that chemistry. And, and then we're building the script and we're finalizing things over Zoom. So yeah, it's it's a blending yeah okay so josh the here's the fun question for you it's the end of the twilight zone but your glasses did not break you can actually (laughs) read things so post-apocalyptic you know uh what is your reading material to survive the apocalypse and comics books you know what have you so what is on your post-apocalyptic reading list Ooh, great question (laughs) um so there'd be a lot of Fantastic Four uh-huh. because a lot of them I haven't read. So so it would be me tracking down any uh, abandoned comic shop and <laughs> rooting through their back issues. Uh, Scott, who, uh, who I mentioned from uh, Shipwreckers, like he's actually been buying up at least beat up reader copies uh-huh. so that he has something to read and is not paying you know prices for something that's sitting in a Mylar bag and been untouched. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, to go back and and read these insanely imaginative stories from Kirby and Lee from the '60s, like oh, I would be spending a lot of time doing that. I think, um, and then uh, I feel like I'd be going back to, you know, I'd be rereading comfort stuff. Like I think it'd be like comfort food. So like uh, old Dean Koontz, like okay. Dean Koontz books from the '80s. I think I would be diving into. Um, I would be, uh, you know, rereading Great and Secret Show from Clive Barker. Um, you know, thing, uh, I'd reread Salem's Lot 
by Stephen King. So I think I think if I was in the apocalypse, I'd probably want comfort food. I'd probably want a lot of comfort food, I think. <laughs> comfort food and rereads, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully you've got your bunker that you're getting ready to set up, right? So <laughs> Just in case. All of those yeah. reading materials and comfort, comfort readings um, down the line when we were in a post-apocalyptic uh, environment. Dangerous. And I think that's probably yeah. what I've been doing now for years, Michelle, is I've been preparing for that. Mm -hmm. and, and at least I get the reading material ready. I don't know about food. I'll have plenty of books and comics, though. I, I'm right there with you. I think I'm <laughs> the same headspace. Is that what we've been preparing for? Is that what all this is about? Maybe that's what this I, is. I think so. I think so. <laughs> tons and tons of books that, you know, just waiting for me to read. I, since we've, you know, listeners out there know that we moved into a new house, all of our stuff's under one roof. We have more books and comics than I, you know, bought more than we've ever consumed. So uh, I yeah, think we've got a lot us, of me, watching to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Us physical media folks, we're just oh. we're just protecting the future. That's all. It's really a selfless act. We're, it is. we're it is. practically archivists and librarians. I'm going to put that on a business card. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll, we'll have our own little exclusive club. So that's what I'm going to tell my wife, honey. I'm just an archivist. This is for the future. That's and why that's, I need this DVD. That's the exactly. way to say it because archivist does have that nice you know, ring to it. It does. Well, it that's does. what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll do the same. But, uh, I... but we're speaking of bleak futures now. So I think yes, yes, yes. we're good futures. Yes. yes. So speaking of good futures, um, yes. and as we come to wrap up our time with you, Josh, it just yeah. went so quick. Um, is there upcoming projects that you can tell us about? Uh, news that you can share with us that would be, you know, breaking confidentiality uh, agreements you have out there? Because he's a perfect <laughs> guy with a lot of pause and a lot of sex and funny i guess is a lot of yes i've got spinning plates i've got quite a <laughs> yeah. bit quite a few spinning plates um uh i'm still working on uh hamster and gretel uh for disney tv and there's plenty more of that to come mm -hmm. um and then um uh like i said we've got uh, more last comics so actually a year from now uh book two will be out so look for that in april and then the following year and this is kind of breaking news. Mm -hmm. um, I've recently sold a two-book uh, series to Andrews McMeal. Okay. Um, and that will be out in uh, 2025. Um, so I'm actually in the midst. And that's another, thank you. It's another uh, middle grade. Uh, lots of fun, lots of comedy, lots of big adventure. Um, mm -hmm. But hopefully that'll announce actually later this year. Um, but that just happened at the end of uh, 2022, and um, it's a story near and dear to my heart. Um, mm -hmm. And it's actually the first one uh, that I've written and sold that's just my own. Aw. Oh, that, that's special. That name on the cover, cover to cover, all you. That's that's the ultimate, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, I do hope that uh, book two of uh, Last Comics on Earth uh, does it come out in a year, but like 10 months. So that way it'll be in time for WonderCon next year. So that yeah. way, oh man, con booth, pimp it out. That would be excellent. We're, we're super looking forward to, we've got a couple signings lined up for this book. Um, fingers crossed. We're going to be able to get to Comic-Con San Diego. I love going to hitting Comic-Con San Diego. 
Um, and yeah, I love WonderCon. Just went this year, had a great time. Uh, took my eldest, and and we did it up. And um, but yeah, you know, part part of this is the opportunity to kind of reach kids. Mm-hmm. So there's uh Max and Jay and I have been doing a lot of school visits. Um, oh, and we yeah. got some more lined up uh just before and after release, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, April 25th of this year. Um, we'll be in stores. Um, and you know, it's great to get books into kids' hands. You know, that's that's a real kind of extraordinary experience. And um, you know, especially with material like this that we've designed for them. Um, and you know, and again, not in a condescending way, it's because inside I'm still about uh, 12 <laughs> years old. I can just drive and have more responsibilities, you know. Well, with that statement, um, I think we would be remiss to not make a, a mention that uh, for uh, our listeners, there is a free comic book day. It's the first Saturday of May. Um, so do seek out your local comic book store. They'll have free comics to give away. They'll have special deals, um, prizes, and they, they really do try to get kids interested in reading comics. So it's a great time to jump in if, if we have listeners out there who haven't gotten into comics before. This is a good time to do it. Unless, 100%. unless Comics on Earth also has like a promo yes. free comic book day release. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up, Michelle, because uh, if I'm going to be totally frank, <laughs> that that might be the thing I'm most excited about. Uh-huh. Like, I'm, I'm thrilled, obviously, about this book. But like free comic book day, so May 6th this year, May 6th, 2023, um, we've got a sampler they put together from Last Comics Book One and so there will be a Last Comics on Earth free comic book out there. Um, and so it's a great introduction to the world and the tone and the work that Max and I and Jay and Doug did. Um, it really gives you a clear picture of the shenanigans that the full graphic novel uh, promise. Um, and yeah, you know, get out there and support your local comic shop. You know, the way that my family and I do it, I know a lot of folks do is, you know, you go in, you get a couple of free comics, and then you buy some things off the shelf, maybe things that you've never read before. And it's a great way to get new readers, Michelle, like you suggested, great way to introduce kids to comics for the first time. Um, But yeah, I think it's a real special thing. And as a comic book fan my whole life, I mean, I can't imagine what that would have been like when I was really, really young. But the fact that we have it, I think is such a big deal. And to be able to participate this year, I am just, I can't, I can't fathom it. I am so excited. Well, he's probably double excited because you get to participate two ways. As one, the big kid going in and getting the comics. And then two, turn around and dishing out comics and maybe signing a couple for some folks. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Josh, uh, it was wonderful having you on the show. We wish you uh, continued success. We're so happy that, you know, Lost uh, uh, Last Comics on uh, Earth is getting its release, part of a free comic book day, a book two coming out, and lots of other projects that you put your big heart into. So thanks for coming on, and we sincerely wish you uh, all the very, very best. Well, um, thank you so much. So grateful for the time. I mean, I just love hanging out and talking to you guys anyway. (laughs) So this is just a great excuse for us to do that. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. It means uh, uh, the world to me to be here uh, and to share with the both of you. So thank you. And I'll come back anytime.
And that concludes our last transmission for this episode. We'd like to thank Erica T. Worth for providing this episode's bumper. We had the honor to interview Erica last year about her newest novel, White Horse. We wish Erica continued success. And in upcoming events, in honor of the free comic book day global event in May, we will be discussing a one-shot comic book, Dream Quest, created by Clay Adams and Mick Byers, published by Fried Comics. We'll announce our transmissions guests in May. Uh, please contact us if you'd like to be a guest on Transmissions. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and feel free to explore our archives. Consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have an Amazon author page of links to all the books that we've either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we also have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.